Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. It's no secret that here at American Glutton, we are big fans of the team at RP, Renaissance Periodization, and our guest today is no exception to that rule. I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Davis, who holds a PhD in neurobiology and behavior and has 10 years of research experience. She is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. Today, we'll talk about her new book, Evidence-Based Habit Building. Finally get shit done. What a fucking title. You can find her on Instagram at regressive underscore underload. Dr. Mal, welcome to the American Glutton podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I have in my life, you know, I don't want to say I'm super susceptible to ideas, but if somebody has a good idea I and, and makes a good argument, I go like, okay, that sounds good. Maybe I'll try that. And, you know, I walked around for the majority of my life believing in free will. And then I did a, a deep dive into, uh, I think he's an anthropologist, Robert Sapolsky. Are you familiar with him at all? Not very familiar, but I know the name. <clears throat> Excuse me. He, basically just goes oh you think you have free will let me destroy that notion for you <laughs> and then i come out of it going like nothing is my responsibility i have no free will it's you know at the end of the day it's just bacteria that's taken over and is controlling everything <laughs> um and then i claw my way out of that and find myself in a place today where i do feel ultimately responsible for everything that happens to me and I think that for me, that's just a saner way to exist. Yeah, I've heard the philosophical argument against free will, and it's sort of interesting to think about, but I don't find it very helpful in my daily life. So right. I prefer to assume that everything that I do has an impact on how I feel and living that way just feels better. Yeah, totally. What do we do with, well, we can't be responsible for anything. Right. <laughs> what are we even thinking about this for? Then it's all, it's so nihilistic, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. That said, I have found um, in my life the uh, creating of a new habit or a new structure by which I live and exist is truly the hardest thing to do. And I'm so excited about you and your new book to have this conversation because I being having a history of sobriety and things of that nature, I'm kind of um, accustomed to like, if I can just experience pain for a long enough amount of time, the pain diminishes. And right. Absolutely. Not painful, but that doesn't have to be the way it is. <laughs> I mean, I think with habits, it is that way as well. I think most good things involve a little pain investment for a lack of pain payoff. And I think habits are painful. Building a new habit is super painful and annoying and frustrating. But then once it's there, it makes your life way easier. So I think it's a it's an interesting dichotomy. You have to push through that high pain to get a lower than before pain for a right. particular activity. And it's a fair trade, ultimately. I think so. Yeah. What, what was your impetus for writing this book? So it was a couple of things. First, just working at RP, I worked with a lot of clients and I, when I first started, I was gung ho. I was like, I know all about the macros and the training. Like I can help these people totally change their lives and totally change, you know, get their goals. And then I found I'd given these perfect plans and you know, there's, maybe 50% of people just wouldn't do it. And I was like, oh, okay, we're there. We're missing a piece here. Like I've got the how to, it's the, how do you make yourself do those things that, that's missing here? So I started getting interested in um, what, what's the data? I'm a scientist. So I'm always interested in like, what do we already know about this and how can I apply it? So I started reading papers and trying to figure out what we know about behavior changing 
pushing through the I don't want to to get to the goal that you actually do want. So that's sort of what started it. And then I guess the the other half is my own personal experience as an athlete. I, you know, I knew what I needed to do a lot of times for my training and competitions, but getting myself to do it was always sort of the, the big hurdle for me. Yeah. The, the kind of the most valuable thing and, and, and it is so valuable. It's like on the order of being life-changing about RP is prior to like really getting to know Dr. Mike and Jared and, and looking at your work, um, you know, I, I kind of was looking at this kind of scientific uh, aspect of dieting and, and then the idea of maintenance periods to break up the diet. And what I just found through doing that was eventually on the maintenance period, you know, I think if done right, you do kind of approach and, and fall into and and I, I think this could probably be different for everybody, but this idea that I had since I was a little kid that there was something innately wrong with me mm-hmm. and and something abnormal. And then suddenly, you know, I'm a few months into my fourth maintenance period and I'm going, wait a second, I'm not gaining weight. I'm not right. measuring anything. Uh, you know occasionally I'm measuring carbs, but I'm not sitting down and writing down all my calories. It's, it's, it's no longer a diet. And that to me, I was like, holy shit, I hadn't even thought about it in those terms. Um, but it is this magical thing of, of feeling like I can touch, you know, and I hate this word normal because I don't, I don't think anybody truly feels that way, but my perception of what, right. Right. You know, yeah, and I think for me, even I never, I didn't struggle with weight hugely, but I did have to lose weight for competitions and then I would gain it back and then I'd have to lose it again for the next competition. So it was this, this up and down thing. And I think you touched on something that was super important to me as RP as Mike, Dr. Mike became a part of my life and like RP developed, which was the liberating aspect of having those maintenance periods and having the basic habits. Like, you know how much your protein serving is. And after a while you just eat that much and you don't really think about it. You don't, you know, I, there were times before RP that I would have just, you know, pancakes and have only carbs for breakfast. And it didn't even cross my mind that that was an issue. And now the, the sort of basic habits are so ingrained and the being able to maintain weight while still like enjoying some food. I'm an American glutton myself and I like <laughs> to have me some food fun. So just being able to have uh, that not always be negative was super, super liberating. Yeah. I, it's a, it's a wild thing that, um, and, and it kind of happened by accident because I wasn't going into it going like I need to solve this. I, I do think though, Um, I never fully, I just had a weird viewpoint, um, with regard to the word lifestyle change, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I thought any diet is a change to my lifestyle and it's going to solve me and I'm going to be fixed and cured. And it, it really did require a lot more work. Um, and I, I don't know, I I wonder if it would have been even more streamlined. I think everything I've done could have been more streamlined had I known now what I, what I didn't know going into it. Yeah. I think that's what anyone who's achieved anything probably feels that way. Like, damn it. You learn so much throughout the process that by the end you're like, Oh, I made so many mistakes. I had so many wrong turns in the beginning. And I just, I think that's a very normal part of any sort of process or achievement. Yeah, totally. Okay. So what are some of the, um, some of the things we can talk about without, you know, you know, just synopsizing the whole book <laughs> that could be helpful for people or give them some insight into what you're talking about as far yeah, sure. as goals go. Yeah. So I think, I think some of my, the most important sort of take homes to me that I would like people to understand is first of all, that habit change, behavior change is a, it's a skill that you develop. It's not like you go buy a toaster and you toast bread. It's like learning to ride a bike or play the piano or getting a black belt. It's a slowly developed skill. And when it takes you a long time, that's not because there's anything wrong. It's because you have a human brain and your current habits are deeply ingrained in your brain. Like it's in your hardware. So it's not a matter of just you being weak or not having enough willpower. It's actually a matter of having to change 
your human hardware. Um, so just taking the guilt out of the slow process, like it's supposed to take a long time. If it didn't, you would have a broken brain and you wouldn't function well in the world, you know? So it's, it's not, there's no shame in the time it takes. And then I think the other big thing is um, people sort of skip over the process of setting the, an appropriate goal, like looking at trade-offs, looking at their current lifestyle and how big of a change and how much work and time it will take for a particular goal. And I think people skip over that, shoot for the stars, and then a lot of times crash and burn. And those crash and burns, they take a toll on your self-efficacy, which can impact your future success. So I think people need to focus more on making sort of realistic goals that fit with their lifestyle and their um, uh, choices or preferences for trade-offs. Yeah. Um, in, in order of importance, which do you think, do you think the goal, figuring out the goal is the, the most important or what would you suggest being number one priority? Yeah, I think figuring out the goal. And for some people, that's so like a lot of literature suggests that if you are a beginner in your arena, that you probably shouldn't have a super specific goal. So if we're talking weight loss and you don't really know about macros or calories or things like that, your goal should just be weight loss. And then you can have uh, sort of smaller, tiny sub goals. Like I'm going to learn about macros this month. I'm going to learn about calories this month. I'm going to increase my vegetable intake. And people really hate that because it's such a slow um, sort of start to the progress. But if you could convince someone to start with learning goals and incorporating veggies and eating more protein before they start really tracking and losing, what you end up with in the very long term is faster overall progress that's maintained instead of sudden loss, revert. And that sort of slow learning process that we talked about where you look back and go, dang it, if I'd only known. Right. Yeah, I've, I've definitely fallen into that trap too a number of times. But I think the... Um the sobriety community kind of understands that because you go yeah. into like a rehab and you go like, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking coffee. I'm going to get on a diet. Right. I'm going to do all this stuff. And they go, hold up. L what are you here for? Let's just focus on that. Right. You know? Let yourself have the other stuff for now until you master this thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because isn't it more likely that once we, um, yeah, I think you're right. If we if we try to hand solve the the entire world, if one right. portion of that crumbles, it's a house of cards, and then we've just right. failed. Yeah, the analogy. One of the analogies I use in the book is: imagine you have to cook six meals in six different houses on the same day. Are you going to run from house to house cooking each meal at the same time? Something's going to burn, and none of the meals are going to be maximally delicious, right? But if you spent your time in one house, prepped it covered it to heat later, moved to the next one, you could cook six amazing meals in one house. And I kind of think that's how you do behavior change. You like focus on one, get it perfect, and then move on to the next one. And, and, and I totally agree. But uh, how do we, and this is something that I felt strongly many times in my life, how do we conquer, you know, sometimes I can remember waking up and just having like a real, I don't know if anxiety is right or anxiousness about no. I, this needs to happen. And, right. you know, yeah, how do, how do absolutely. we curb that? Yeah, I think that's that's really hard. It's very, very human nature to feel that way. And I think part of how you can curb that is to set up ways to measure success that are smaller. So, you know, if you are looking to lose a certain amount of weight in a certain amount of time, instead of focusing on how far you are away from that end goal, which can feel really far and make you feel even more stressed and rushed to get there. If you focus on, did I, you know, get veggies in three out of five of my meals for the last week? Okay, that's more than two out of five of my meals the week before. I'm going to celebrate that. So if you need Excel sheets or like little graphs or journals to say like, what are the behaviors I need to bring me to this end goal? And how much better am I at those today than I was yesterday? And I think that promotes self-efficacy and something to focus on that isn't so far away. So it makes you a little less stressed, a little less anxious because you can be like, okay, I'm doing better every day. I'm doing better. And that's how you get, that's how you climb a mountain, right? Little steps. Yeah. And I think you notice, um, you become aware of these things. Like once you enter into the club of it, um, I, I, I'd been going and lifting weights for years 
having injuries, having to have surgeries, going out. And I remember the day I read about progressive overload and was like, oh, this seems a lot safer and more sustainable <laughs> and I'll get all the benefits that I've been looking for and right. maybe even quicker. I'm going to yeah. do this. And suddenly you start to notice the dudes at the gym with the little pad of paper and they're writing everything down. Right. You're like, I never even noticed that dude right. before. Uh, that dude didn't exist. And suddenly they're kind of all over and you're like, oh, I know what you're doing. I'm doing right. that too. Um, I think it's a fun, a fun world entering these little clubs where you have like-minded people. Kind yeah, of. absolutely. And that social support can be super helpful too. Just knowing there are other people you can talk to about doing this, who, who know, they know what you're going through. They know the little struggles that come with it. Yeah. Definitely helpful. Um, okay. So we have setting of goals. We have um, uh, changing behaviors what's a time frame it you know and i've read different things where it's like it it requires 60 days to change a habit is this something you believe in or or advocate for no i don't think there's a time frame i think it it's so independent it's kind of like you know how how quickly will someone get 20 percent stronger in the deadlift depends on the person depends on the training depends on the previous training experience you know it depends on so many things i think if you are someone who has a lot of practice with behavior change and you're like, I want to floss more, you'll probably be flossing more without any glitches in a week. But if you're someone who has never trained, never, you know, looked at macros or calories and you want to lose a bunch of weight and, you know, do a bodybuilding show, that's good. That might be years before all of those habits are solidified. So it depends on where you are. You know, what other constraints are going on in your life? Do you have kids, a job, a bunch of other stressors that are going to slow you down and get in the way a little bit? And I think sort of putting what I like to tell people is do it for two weeks, because after two weeks, you usually start at least feeling like an increase in that behavior is possible. And that tends to motivate people. But I certainly don't think that you can pick an exact time that it takes to, to form a habit. Yeah. And, and, and I liked all the different scenarios you, you painted because a lot of the times when we think about this, we, we, it's almost impossible to factor everything in without just applying it and then right. noticing like, Oh, this came up, you know, I sit and try to imagine every potentially <laughs> scenario, every potential scenario that could arise. And then there's more than not, it will be like, Oh, I didn't think about this. Right. I didn't think about it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that beginners are better off not making a specific goal because they're just not as good at predicting, you know, even the, the best of us, the most experienced of us are going to miss some things. Some things are going to pop up and we'll be like, uh, didn't even, didn't even cross my mind. But for people who are totally new, everything that pops up is going to surprise them. And the, so setting a more specific goal means they're more likely to fail. Whereas just setting a progress goal can make them feel better and they'll learn about the things that get in the way on the way. Yeah. And do you think if, um, if somebody does have a specific goal that is realistically attainable, like if I woke up tomorrow and went like, I really want to play professional baseball, that is not, I cannot see any path that gets me there, but, right. but there are other goals. Like um, I think any human being on earth could do a bodybuilding show because yeah. it's, yeah. there's no, you know, you can go do, there's no like, you know, until you get into professional stuff, you can just do it. You, you know, just do it. Yeah, just yeah. Sign up. yeah. So if, if you have a goal like that um, or something that is truly attainable for anyone, um, I wouldn't want to dissuade people from not having that as a goal, but it, it, is it more important to go like, what are maybe sub goals or, or some other things that all create the foundation to get there? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. This is another case where sort of beginners and more advanced people on a particular goal arena differ in how they should approach it. If you've been, you know, training and dieting for a long time and you're like, I want to do a bodybuilding show that's a cool challenging goal and you'll most likely succeed because you already have the foundation. You have the foundational knowledge, you know, what behaviors you probably already do a lot of them. You just sort of have to kick them into higher gear to get ready for a show. Whereas if 
you're newer, that's it's so far away and there's so many things to learn in on the way there. It's probably much better to start with super small sub goals. And then, you know, eventually as you work your way up, a body bodybuilding show is a sub goal. You're so close to it that it's a tiny step. Yeah. And I think for beginners, those steps on the way are far more important than shooting really high because the data just suggests that if you shoot too high before you know enough, you probably won't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I will say that for sure, my goals have changed drastically yeah. through, through the years of like what I wanted initially, what I was happy with, what I wasn't happy with, um, where I've ended up today. And my, need to continue to set goals um has been also something i discovered like yeah th- this idea that i arrive in a place where i'm <laughs> just done with everything doesn't exist right um, right but that said h- how like within the realm of it, because um most of my goals have centered around weight loss um and massive weight loss to be mm-hmm. very precise. Um, do you think there's any use to um, addressing this idea of lifestyle first before addressing weight loss? Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think sort of just, I've said it a bunch of times, it was worth continuing to talk about. It's just self-efficacy is so correlated with success. So what that basically means is the more little wins you have, the more likely you're to, you are to continue succeeding and to continue getting your goals. So setting yourself up to have those little wins is so important. And I think for a lot of people, I often with clients who have a lot of weight to lose and have a really big lifestyle change to make, like they come to me and they've been, you know, eating a lot of fast food. They don't really count macros. They don't exercise ever. What I usually have them do is just add vegetables, make sure every meal has protein. Don't worry about anything else. Go to the gym three times a week and lift weights. Because what tends to happen is if you haven't ever lifted and you're just eating normally and you go lift three times a week, you're going to start seeing changes in your body. You're going to get body composition changes. Those new gains are going to show up and people get excited. They feel motivated. They feel like, oh shit, I can change. I can do this. And then they're like, ready to start changing their diet. It's not such um, an overwhelming thing that they feel like they've failed at so many times and they don't have a lot of faith that anything's going to happen. But once they have those changes and have those successes, they're like, okay, all right, I'm on my way. I can start counting my macros. Like I can change my body. And I think that people don't realize that. And it's, it's really critical. Yeah. And, and super rational. Um, I do know that I don't, I I wasn't really, mentally confident enough to enter a gym for for a couple of years prior to uh, once I started losing weight, it was still Mm -hmm. a few years before I stepped foot in a gym. Yeah. Um, uh, And, and so if, if, if that's an issue, what do you suggest? Yeah. So that's an issue I think for a lot of people, Um, what you tend to do is you, you're, you're framing sort of like you're thinking of the gym and it, what it comes with it is only negative context. Like what will people think of me? Like, oh, will I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Are they going to stare and people? Lots of people feel that way. And what you need to do is start sort of associating the gym with something positive. Can you bring a friend with you to the gym who makes you feel good and confident about yourself? Can you do something that you're really good at that gives you confidence right just before you go to the gym you know maybe you're a great singer and you can stand in the mirror and sing a song and be like I'm a badass and then go to the gym and you carry a little bit of that confidence with you so anything you can do to sort of take away the the obstacles so the negative feelings about the gym are an obstacle if you can get some dumbbells and work out at home first so you get confidence and you know moving with weights and doing the exercises just anything to to replace that negative with a positive, whether it's taking someone to the gym or working out somewhere else or just boosting your own confidence before you go there. Yeah, I, I, I think that a, a huge part of the game, even just like taking the first step on a program requires some confidence or self-worth yeah. that I that I certainly 
didn't have for a long time. And it was kind of like a weird way that I kind of felt better about myself that I was even encouraged to do that. So I am constantly looking for solutions with people who are on their own and kind of just like, you know, maybe have this desire, but have like, you know, a lifetime of shitting on ourselves for lack of a better word that, that, that impedes us from starting a journey, you know? Yeah. I think another important thing to do just in the general context for that is be careful how you speak to yourself. So the words, it sounds sort of hippie and silly, but how you speak to yourself in your head has an impact on what you feel you're capable of. And I, I met a guy at a seminar in Canada who had just a like perfectly illustrative story about that. And he was, he was a big jacked man, but he, apparently he used to weigh a lot more and not be fit at all. And he said that he would tell his friends, I'm just the happy fat guy. And that's what he told everyone. And that's what he joked about. And that's what he told himself. And he's like, when I look back, I wasn't happy at all. I wanted to change, but I felt on top of, you know, all of the other difficult parts of changing that changing would mean that I had to admit to everyone that I'd been lying for years about being the happy fat guy. And I had to deal with that as an additional obstacle, you know? So I think not calling yourself lazy, not calling yourself fat, not calling yourself any of these things and boxing yourself into an identity helps. And also sitting down with yourself and just going through a logical conversation. And this is going to sound silly, but speaking to yourself in the third person has actually been shown to, to help. So be like, hey, Mel, you're not a lazy person. Look at all of these things you've done. Like, write down the evidence. You're actually a very motivated and capable person. You just need to apply those qualities to this other aspect of your life. You're totally capable. And giving yourself these third-person pep talks and refusing to call yourself things that put you in a box that makes it harder for you to get out of can be, can be helpful. Yeah, I, I've talked about this um, a lot. And I think I continue to talk about it because... I haven't found the language that uh, makes it evaporate for me, that totally encapsulates it. And and I go like, that was exactly it. But there was something about, I was in a relationship with a girl who I'm now married to, and I was the weight I was. This was not something hidden from her. She could see it. She could touch it. Like that was, there's no avoiding that. And yet the feeling of 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 communicating her to her that 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 this was not what I wanted mm-hmm. was so bizarrely hard for me because it was like I was gonna reveal to her that it was even the thing to think about. Right. You know? Yeah, I think that comes from the idea that you have to the part that you're revealing is the part that you want to change and you haven't yet. And that's the part that makes you feel Like you're not self-efficacious. Like if you wanted to change, why didn't you do it yet? You know, that's, I think the dialogue people have in their head and that's what you're afraid to expose. Yeah. And there was so much um, time and effort put into simultaneously trying to make this thing uh, not matter and also hidden at the same time. Like, uh, you know, I've, I still walk around with a scowl on my face kind of accidentally because I wanted people to think I was tough and mean so they wouldn't make fun of me. You right, know, right. like yeah. this is crazy. And my kids will catch me and say, dad, stop being so grumpy. You look angry. And I'd be like, <laughs> oh, I, I don't mean to at all. This right. is just kind it's of the permanent. Yeah. 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 So I, I think there's a, a, a lot, um, a lot to delve into just with regard to honesty and and yeah. and even if you're just being honest with yourself that's a big hard step but i think an important one. oh yeah absolutely and there's there's just so so many people who do hide from their friends and family even when they're going on diets just because a they don't want to diet and fail and have to admit to people that they failed and two they don't want people to know that they want something different that this isn't how they want to be because then that makes them feel like bad for not having taken care of it earlier. So it's, it's super common for people to want to hide that from themselves, like you said, and from, from friends and family, but, you know, really 
telling your friends and family what you want and what you're working on can can be hugely helpful because then you have support. You can go to them and talk to, about the struggles. You feel like you have cheerleaders in your corner and it's it's hard to do, but I think it's super important to, to sort of come clean and even just sit down with yourself. Next step, maybe sit down with your significant other, whoever's closest to you and talk to them about it. Yeah, I totally agree. One, one of the, the, uh, it's a very difficult actually, but of kind of like a principle in sobriety is getting self, getting, um, becoming honest with yourself and opening mm-hmm. up to God. And, and, and by God, it's not necessarily a monotheistic thing, right? Right. It's whatever your idea of a higher power is yeah. me plus any other person is a higher power than right. me, which I find to be super useful. Or if you're religious, God, get honest right. with God. You know what I mean? Um, that that honesty, I think, is vital, specifically with regard to even setting goals or starting anything. Because if you're if you're withholding stuff and you're hiding it, even from yourself, you're you're burying it with other thoughts and ideas. Right. It's it's kind of going to get in the way at some point. I think. Yeah. It just adds yet another thing to work on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whereas let's be totally honest with ourselves and based on that honesty, let's figure out what we can do and based right. on what we can do, let's start doing it. Right. Exactly. And I think it opens you up to, to take responsibility, not only for your failures, but for your successes. Right. If you're honest with yourself about what you're doing, what it leads to, how you feel, what you want, then the things that you do, you're suddenly empowered to, to go after what you want and not boxed in by your own definitions. Yeah. And, and what's a, what's a good way for somebody to approach this who has had many failures? Yeah, I think starting the more failures you sort of experience in an arena, the smaller you should start and the more you should focus on the behavior goals instead of the outcome goals. Ultimately, our behavior is what we can actually control, right? The outcome is a result of our behavior, but we can't really directly control that. And it very often comes at this delay. So it's really hard to to feel like we can get there if we failed a lot. But if we can find the tiny things day to day that we can change in our behavior, we can be reassured that the outcome is coming and we can sort of take self-efficacy and success from each of those little behavior changes that we make that will support what we ultimately want. Yeah. It's amazing. I love this kind of stuff because it really does. um, It feels reassuringly easy almost right you know what i mean it's hard work but it's simple it's simple principles yeah right and none of it involves really making such a radical change to your life um and i've i've found just personally as i as i wrote the book and sort of worked through these ideas like when i write down goals now i write down like supporting behavior goals and then those are what i focus on tracking and it's been hugely helpful yeah. So how do we, what, what do we look for with supporting behavior goals? Right. So depending on what your goal is, I think sort of the first thing you need to start doing after you've decided on a pretty reasonable goal, start looking at what behaviors you have that are preventing that and what behaviors you know will lead to your outcome. And that's where you work, start working on behavior change. Like how can I start you know, either eliminating this behavior or replacing it with a neutral or productive behavior in order to get where I want to go. Yeah, I I think I've stumbled upon this over the course of many years, but certain things like not cooking, not waiting until I'm starving to cook or not waiting until I'm starving to decide what I'm going to eat or go to the store or something like that. I try to eat much less in front of the television um yeah you know mindful eating is definitely helpful yeah yeah and you know unfortunately there are like a plethora of words that make my skin crawl truly like oh god what are we like flower children (laughs) um and like mindfulness is definitely one of them and uh intuitive eating and lifestyle change like all these things i feel like i should have long hair and bell bottoms and be in like a field of sunflowers (laughs) that said 
they are all very accurate. You yeah, know, at yeah. the end of the day, they're useful. My like, I want to be a macho guy kind of urge gets in the way of me just going, no, these are great words that actually communicate something if you're yeah. ready to hear it. I also have the macho guy urge. So <laughs> putting a chapter on mindfulness into my book hurt a little part of me, but yeah. the literature is just so good. And like, how do you actually change unless you're noticing what is wrong, right? Yeah. How do you change your behavior if you don't pay attention to your behavior? So, yeah, it took me, um, I think I wasn't into my second proper maintenance period before I went, Oh, I have the opportunity right now to like try and figure out what it feels like to be full on a, an appropriate meal. Cause I never right. do that. I typically just wolf my food down and go, that's what I get. And that's it. Now I'm going to go on with my day. And I started sitting and going like, is there a physiological trigger that's in there that I've smashed that's right. almost doesn't exist can I find Listen that again? To it, yeah <laughs> yeah can it can can I get in touch with that you know and then I was reading um about uh nerve development in children's heads and if they were stopped from being successful at a given task the the nerves didn't develop fully and so they were more likely to be unsuccessful in life because of this and I was like, is it possible to beat that? Because, you know, like whatever, the, you know, even just thinking about it purely biologically. Um, but uh, gift upon gift, I eventually did feel like this is a meal that I didn't weigh, that I ate, that I'm now aware that I had a meal. I'm not hungry. I'm not feeling the urge to go open the jar of rice yeah. and keep eating, you know, like all of these things. And it was through the practice of ugh, mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And that's the talking about the, the brain development part is, is really interesting. So I think like the slight, slight tangent, um, the marshmallow study, everybody knows about that, right? Like the kids who just grabbed the marshmallow right away, supposedly were less successful later in life. But Subsequent data has shown that that's not really what was going on and what the, some of the things that sort of factored into the children's choice were a lot more rational than it seems like. So if the children had experienced, you know, poverty or other sort of chaos in their life, their impulse was to eat the marshmallow immediately. And that wasn't because they were, you know, just not good at life. It was because they had learned they couldn't always trust future promises, you got to take what's in front of you right now and not gamble on the fact that there will be two marshmallows later. That guy might not bring the other marshmallow. So they were actually making a rational choice. Like I'm not betting on anything. I'm going to get what I can and not risk it. So um, they found that that study, the, the conclusions they drew were a little bit wrong. So our sort of self-control isn't set from childhood. Our experiences do alter what we're starting with as we go into adulthood, but it is malleable. It can, it can be changed. And like, not just by training things like getting married or having a kid very often immediately increase people's self-control capacities they've found. So. Yeah. Do you think that idea of external responsibility is very helpful? Yeah, it seems to be, it seems to be a big driver. And um, that's another one of those sort of everyone thought willpower was a limited resource until you threw in motivation. And if you throw in a, a motivation, usually internal is better, but you know, something like a kid is kind of an internal motivation because you want to, you have a strong value for taking care of your child. So when you throw that in, it gives you a renewed willpower resource. So these things aren't necessarily set or limited. Do you, do you value or set any values on, divergent motivations like for you is there a, a more valid or useful motivation versus maybe something that's less useful yeah so it seems like based on the the science that internal value driven motivation is stronger that's not to say that people won't work hard for money they will but usually just to give an example if you value hard work if you value you know being a good team member at your job if you value you know saying you're going to do something and doing it on time those are internal motivators to do well at your job 
you add the external motivation of getting paid more and you get someone who's very successful. On the other hand, someone who doesn't value those things, but does want the money has the external, but not the internal motivation. And they're less likely to be successful. So external motivators aren't bad. They just aren't very predictive of success without those internal sort of value, passion-driven motivations. Okay. So perfect. How, if, if you have, if we have a, a, a situation where um, somebody is so despondent and, and hard on them, themselves, I, I think in that situation, it's going to be difficult for that person to even concoct an internal motivation, no? Yeah, it can, it can definitely be difficult. I think, though, like what you do is you, you have a goal and you think about why do I have this goal, right? And you look for a way, like, for instance, maybe you have a goal that's totally not your own. It's it's external, like your significant other wants you to drink less. You don't want to drink less, right? But you might have an internal drive to have a, a harmonious marriage. And you can say, like, instead of framing this as I'm going to try to drink less because he or she doesn't want me to, you can say, I want a harmonious marriage. I think that's important. So that's what's going to drive me towards this goal. So I think sitting down and framing things can be really helpful. It's obviously when you're dealing with someone who is either depressed or having, you know, psychological issues that are really getting in the way. I, I would say even, you know, therapy, talking to someone um, can help you. And then once you're in a place where you have enough just sort of internal energy, right? Because depression just sort of saps your energy to do things or to change or to want um, once you're in a place where you're ready to want and to be driven, then reframing things with an internal motivator can be helpful. Just writing it down differently, saying it differently to yourself. Yeah. Okay, great. And now, and this might be not something you in your wheelhouse at all, but I want to ask because of my experience as a kid, um, if you have like, okay, I, I'm very much feel that, um, all these values and goals are all subjective, pretty much. We, yeah. can, we can take metrics and say health, but how we value health is subjective right. too. Right. Um, the only way science has a value is if a person applies a value to it. So it's purely subjective right. in, my, in my opinion. Um, what my experience was, was I was a little kid who you know, I guess at a very young age, I, I was um, showing signs of of um, not eating in the way that the people around me thought was healthy or good. Mm-hmm. And so I was put on diets very early. And I, and, and most of my motivation, uh, and sorry, 100% of my motivation was either authoritarian or this kind of attempt to beguile me into doing it by creating some reward system none of that worked for me yeah so that actually there's, yeah, there's actually if you can finish there's data on that though yeah so okay i want to hear that data but i also want to know if we have a value we are trying to impart on another and maybe it's vitally important to us is there a way to coax it in like I, I really appreciate what you said about if if you want to have a harmonious marriage you just have to prioritize and go which is more important and that's a thing you determine um but if we're running into a situation because i have people all the time ask me uh my son is overweight or my husband is overweight will you please talk to him and i'm like no i won't <laughs> because i'm not going to de- determine what's true for that guy that's not my job i find though when we have a situation with children and there is some parental responsibility like i don't i can't say my parents were wrong for putting me on a diet but how could they have been successful right right so the the data for um children with parents who are sort of imposing values like that and i don't get me wrong. Like, of course you want to impose values on your children, but in that way of mandating certain things um, that the child doesn't necessarily understand why they need to want um, is 
tends to be a lack of self-control in adulthood. And there's actually data for that. And it's always well-intentioned, but, you know, the science takes a while to, to get to people's ears so that they know what the best choice is. And what really, in general, for adults, my stance on this is, I think, probably very akin to yours from what you said, is very libertarian. You know, there's no right or wrong. I got in a small debate with someone at a seminar once talking about like, well, health, health is important to everyone. That's has to be important to everyone. No, it doesn't. You know, like look at these bodybuilders over here. Like these women, these women haven't had periods for months. Like these men are, you know, maybe taking drugs that are going to make them lose their hair or lose, you know, a couple of years of their life. There's, I was a jujitsu competitor. My neck is messed up. My fingers are ruined. I, we all make sacrifices for the things we love. And if what you love is eating food and sacrificing your health is okay, that's a choice. And that's a perfectly rational choice that someone can make. And I think that for some reason, health and, uh, being, being larger is something that we sort of treat differently because we can visibly see it, right? You can't necessarily see everyone's vices or choices, but I, I think there's no reason that health has to be imposed as a value that everyone has to have. It's just not. And, you know, people make arguments about, oh, it's a, it's a burden on society and things like that. So are lots of other things. You know, if you're a downhill, like mountain bike racer, you get hurt and go to the hospital, you know, you might also be a burden on society. Anyway, that was a big, long tangent. But when it comes I to- love it. I love that <laughs> tangent. I totally agree with you. So when it comes to kids, though, I think I get it. Like you want to, they maybe don't know enough yet to, to make those decisions that might impact their life. And I think rather than putting children on a diet, sort of teaching them, like empowering them, like here are these things, these foods lead to this, these foods lead to this, these are more health promoting, these you should eat in more moderation, like here are the consequences, giving them sort of some educational material in a way, and then saying like, let's let, let's let you make, like design a healthy meal for yourself tonight. Like, what do you want to eat? And I think very often that that gives kids, they don't get that pushback. Like, Oh, I'm not going to do what mom and dad said. This sucks. And they don't get the suffering from being forced onto a diet and they're able to learn about things and be empowered to make decisions, which usually makes people feel better about themselves and want to make more better decisions. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. That's, that seems pretty radical but I, I i feel like there's some truth in that just in when i have found when i want to accomplish something whether i need somebody's assistance or not by enlisting their help i'm far more likely to have uh success with them right. um than by just saying here's the way it is right. you know um I think it's a radical thing, but like, I, you know, I think it could be a fun experiment to say, like, <laughs> you guys go shopping, you know, um, right. you know, maybe not a two year old, but right. <laughs> who's capable of like taking stuff off a shelf and designing yes. it and let them cook. I think that could be a really cool thing to do. And, you know, something I run into a lot, my, my childhood was, uh, very strict with regard to food there was no there was I, I mean i think there was like a bottle of champagne in my house one time that i remember as a kid on a new year's eve but otherwise it was like a dry house mm -hmm. um drugs were absolutely taboo and and then i was a total fucking mess you know uh yeah. the the the, I was a mess during it. And as soon as I had any freedom at all, I was a real mess. Um, and I didn't feel like I could communicate with my parents about any of this because their view from my point of view was just, this is the way it is. And we don't step outside these right. boundaries. Um, There's an interesting parallel between something we talked about earlier too, which is that the, the sort of idea of diet and then maintenance and diet and then maintenance and that being liberating, like nothing's taboo, nothing's off limits. You do it different amounts at different times. I think it's sort of the same idea when you make things very black and white, very yes or no, you get a taboo desire for the no things. And then you tend to dive in because, you know, you're already doing the bad thing. Who cares how much? 
Whereas if it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing that you don't do as much. It's not really as exciting. And maybe you have it sometimes, but it's not this taboo thing that you sort of indulge and jump in and, you know, go to the dark side for for a while. Right. Yes. And I think if the consequences in our mind are less severe, then maybe it's easier to get out of these things if we decide we need to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Behavior change, something, another sort of third thing to think about that's really important is there are so many strategies and so many options and so many different ways to start modifying and tweaking your behavior and tricking yourself and finding the way that works for you is really important. Trial and error, you know, some strategies work amazingly. Like the strategy of, making it harder to get foods that you want doesn't work for me. For some people, that's great. If they have to walk to the other side of the house and like open up a cupboard to get it, they'll probably skip it. For me, I'll go open the cupboard and like eat all of it because screw you, I already walked to the other side of the house. Now, you know, so (laughs) just finding the strategies that work for your personality and your sort of uh, interests and preferences is a really good idea. Yeah, I I, I I like I like that because I I remember see, hearing about a, a kitchen safe that you could like put a timer on or it was only open for a certain <laughs> amount of time, and I remember thinking like that's cool if that works for somebody. I'm gonna break that thing. In yeah, half. I I have an axe in the garage. I'll get it. Yeah, if <laughs> I'll I show want you it, safe. It's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and and I gotta be totally frank with you. The thing I love most about talking about diets, first of all, I relate more to the idea that there's nothing really right or wrong. You know, we know scientifically that energy balance is a thing. Thermogenesis is a thing. You have to warm up energy to a certain point and then it becomes a gas. And this is just science, right? No value on that at all. How you do that doesn't really matter to me. Um, What I am kind of invested in is people feeling like they can be successful. Like, I think that's a cool thing. Um, And so I'm totally interested in hearing all the wild different ways. You know, if somebody said, if somebody was advocating for like a a diet of broken glass, I'm not super (laughs) interested in that. That's not interesting to me. But all these other variations, because at the end of the day, there's no military behind any of this. Right. Whatever wins is simply because the person decided that's what they were going to do and they did it right. and it was successful. And it's like, Hey man, I'll high five anybody who exactly. has success. Exactly. Um, it really is a fun topic because of that, you know? Yeah. It's very, and it's like training. It's individualized. You know, you're, you're an individual person. Different things are going to work for you. Different strategies different you're going to want different outcomes and they're all fine <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it can offer a little bit of hope to people too which yeah is nice, for sure for sure you know? that's one of the most important things to me is is offering that like you're not stuck let's just get creative right? yeah yeah that's amazing dr mel thank you so much thank you that was fun thanks for listening to this episode of american glutton i'm ethan suplee and as always joined by my chaperone Paige dorian Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.